Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning, you're with the double L team, Lyleen. Lawson. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Oh, look outside, Lyle. Look at that. What are you thankful for? Look, it's raining. Exactly. I'm asking what you're thankful That's for. That's good. It's great for the trees. And you know what else is great for? It is the perfect weather to take the day off work and to sit in the shed all day and fix my motorbike, <laughs> <laughs> which I am going to be doing today. Ah, fun times for Lawson today. Yep. So just, you know, pre- prepping my mind, prepping. Psyching up for it. That's right. To, to fully strip my bike, take the motor out and prepare it to be taken to an engine builder. To and, 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 and who's leading the uh, Formula One right now? Oh, who, who's, who's leading the, the Formula oh, One? Max see. Verstappen is. Oh, there you go. There you go. Of course. Uh, <laughs> Look, crazy. Big things are happening. <laughs> big things are happening here on Faith FM. For those of you who don't know, uh, Lawson was a uh, professional um, GP3 rider for um, what a couple of years? Or yeah, yeah, couple of, couple of years. Lived overseas, and so motorsport is his thing. Well, yeah, I'm kind of into it. Jesus is more my thing now, but yes. but uh, yes. but you know when it, when it's on, it's on. <laughs> but right. good stuff. What are you grateful for this morning? I am grateful for an amazing weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the last three Sabbaths that I've preached in. Ch- in churches have been the first Sabbaths that those churches have been back worshiping <laughs> together. So yeah. there seems well, to be a bit of a staggered return to worship. Mm. And so that's just been a great experience. It's always good to be able to go somewhere and preach. Now, this Saturday I'll be at Taree. Oh, legendary. Great group of people up there looking forward to it. Um, at this stage I'm planning on speaking on Revelation Chapter 11. Oh, French Revolution. Heavy stuff. Yes. That's, yeah, that's awesome. the plan. It might change. Pray for me. <laughs> but that's the plan as it stands right now. That's awesome. That's yeah. so good. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. And Lawson, what do we have happening in positively different news this morning? Positively different news around the world. Okay, I came across the most epic story this morning in terms of energy and renewable energy and just things like like amazing things happening uh, in our world and basically solving the problems that come along with renewable energy, particularly in the area of when we look at a wind farm and we, when we look at a solar farm, they necessitate um, essentially appropriate weather, right? If you have a solar farm, you know, let's... Yes, let, you need to have sun. That's right. You know, if you put you have a, a wind farm, you need to have wind. <laughs> That's right. Say if I, you know, chucked a solar farm up in the Arctic, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I put a solar farm up there, you'd have power for half the year. And then the other half of the year, you'd really struggle. You'd be powerless. And same thing with wind farms, you know, depending on its location, it cannot work. But what has happened is that, uh, the UK have laid this Massive, it's the longest undersea cable that exists that extends from Morocco to England. Um, and in that undersea cable is carrying a ton of energy that is powering over 7 million homes in England. That's, that's decent. And the reason it's going from Morocco to have lots of sun. England is because they have a ton of sun. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great thing to go to England. Every now and then in England, uh, the sun comes out. You've been to England? I have been to England. Have you seen the sun come out in England? Uh, No. No. Okay. So I've been to England (laughs) several times, and one of those times when I was there, the sun came out. It was, it was, yeah. I I have seen the sun in England. That's, and 
and uh, everybody went to the park and started to take their shirts off and, you know, lay on the grass. <laughs> and and it's it like was, 18 degrees. <laughs> no, it was 12. It's 12. <laughs> <laughs> That's it was like, so classic. And everyone was white. Yeah. Except for the people who weren't white. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> all the indigenous, is- all the indigenous Brits were out there, you know, just sort of like, son, this is round yellow thing in the sky. What is that? <laughs> well, dude, oh, we've offended all of our British friends this morning. We love you guys. We love the Brits. We well, love. We love. Uh, they, no, this is this is their we, experience. They we, know. We, we love to. Uh, yeah, that's right. We love to stir up. Um, you know. The, the, the country that colonised. Yeah, that's right. Us. That's why all the smart Brits, aka the criminals, came here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, I'll steal a loaf of bread and get sent to get a, a place free, with get a sun. Free trip to, yeah. <laughs> that's right, a free trip to a place with sun. Yeah, so I can uh, yeah cop some vitamin D. But yeah, that is something that they definitely can't rely on in England. So they've laid this massive cable. Um, it is like, you know, 3,800 kilometers long from Morocco to England. But the really cool thing about it is that its facilities, you know, the, the different wind farms, the solar farms, and the battery storage facility that is generating all this power and then storing this power and then being sent is not all in one location. It's over, like, an area of, like, 1,500 kilometers. So it's like they're taking energy from all over the place, then routing it into one place, then sending it to England to, for it to then be distributed to a whole different bunch of places. So I think this is like a, a huge step where it's like, yeah, they're they're really making um, solar and whatnot. They're putting it in one location that is thriving and that is possible for it to run and, uh, yeah, distributing to it uh, places that are thousands and thousands of kilometers away. In other news, uh, I read a story this morning a, about a refugee camp in Cameroon that houses 60,000 people. So this is a quite a sizable refugee camp um, in the town of Minawau. Uh, and in Minawau, in Cameroon, this these particular refugees are all refugees who fled from Boko Haram, the insurgency in the neighboring country of Nigeria. Now, this region uh, in 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 Cameroon is like a dusty desert region that is super arid, um, of which, you know, the starting of a refugee camp there only increased to the desertification of this particular area and because they were cutting down all the trees and there was so much foot traffic there. And, you know, the more pressure there is, you know, more people walking around, the less things have the op- opportunity or the ability to grow. And so it was quite a dire situation. It's just this big old dust bowl, which is, you know, a lot of what Africa in this particular area is. Um, and But uh, a group uh, – well – People from the Lutheran World Federation, as well as the United Refugee Agencies, said, okay, we need to come up with a plan to stop the desertification of this area um, and to be able to, you know, plant, you know, trees and fruits and vegetables and all these different things to be able to essentially make this refugee camp more sustainable because at the moment like we're running out of firewood we're running out like there's we have no ability to grow things here we're having to ship food in and it's becoming a a really uh dire situation in this particular refugee camp and so they've gotten together um and in this harsh climate where like you know it's during the summer it's an average of like 35 degrees temperature all the rivers dry up you know it's like wild um they've gone on to use, you know, methods of planting and whatnot to essentially create a forest. 
around this refugee camp. And you got to look at the photos live. Check this out. Check this so out. They've used methods of planting. Yes. Yes. What, no, but just... look, look at this photo. This yeah, is what that, it was that, in that 2014. And this is what it is now. So in 2014, you're basically looking at, um, as far as the eye can see, dirt. Dirt. Just dirt and desert. This is, and you know, you look king... at it now and as far as the eye can see, it's vivid green. That's right. Like the top picture is like, this is, you know, the Afghani deserts. This is like Burke. In yes. This, this no, no, it's even it's even drier than Burke because Burke is um arid. Yeah. That's just dirt. That's just dirt. You know, Burke you've got lots of um mulga and you know, just sort of okay. low scrub and all that kind of stuff. This is just dirt. This There's is, no low scrub there at all. There's n- nothing. Nothing. And now it's like this thriving forest ecosystem where it's not just like trees and grass, which is pretty pretty awesome. Um, but also they've got a ton of different fruits growing there and, you know, um, uh, cashew trees and all kinds Ooh. of things that are providing I like food cashews. for the refugee camp. Like they've turned Do a lot it, of things with cashews. You can make milk out of cashews. You can make milk out of cashews. You can make cheese out of cashews. You can eat cashews because they taste good. You can roast them and you put salt on them. Roast. You can, you can do a lot of things. They, they, they're good value. But essentially, yeah, these, this, they're just killing it now. They're doing really well for themselves. And, um, yeah, again, turning this refugee camp into, you know, a sustainable area where people fleeing, um, Things can, can you often hear horror stories about the refugee camps yes. because they're often so understaffed, so um, undersupplied, disease ridden, disease ridden. So many struggles, but this this refugee camp here in Cameroon is completely turned they're around. Setting and, this, well, they're setting the standard there, and they're, they're absolutely setting the standard. And then for the refugees who come, you know, whilst they're placed there at the refugee camp, they are getting roles and jobs that I they are getting paid for because there's well, it's industry. good for your mental health to get out and build um, grow stuff. That's right. So this is this is you know one of the most positive things that they could be doing for the but you know because people people's mental health really does suffer when they're in a refugee camp. Mm, totally. But it does a really good thing for their health once you can be, get out and and grow stuff and be active. Mm. So really really amazing stuff here. The final story I have uh hmm. <laughs> I just want to mention this briefly. So uh New York City has elected a new mayor. Okay. His name is Eric Adams. Okay. Seems seems like a uh, pretty cool dude. Okay. And he has requested uh, to be paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> which I read. Which, which which Lawson was like, yeah, he's a decent guy. And Lawson's now like, I'm I don't, never going to I, vote for this guy. I don't like him anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> Lawson no, but, has, a, has a war on Bitcoin. No, but it's Lawson's not. view on Bitcoin is that this is a form of gambling. <laughs> And that as Christians, we do not believe in gambling. It's gambling and eco-terrorism. We can go on about that later. But, no, the point here is um, it's just interesting because I'm like, what happens if Elon Musk gets on Twitter and then you lose half the value of your paycheck overnight? Like, New York Mayor, are you okay? <laughs> Anyways, 0491064669. Just that I'm going to call if you have a say on that. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so here we go. Uh, somebody's um, texting through here some details for you um, in relationship to refugee camps. There are currently eighty. There are currently twenty six point four million mm. refugees in our world right now. That's a massive number. Eighty two point four million displaced persons. That's the population of Australia. Mm. Are refugees? That's that's wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's heavy. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, let's let's move on. And talk about some more serious news. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Okay, so let's go over to the US and let's look at the um, the vax mandates that they've got over there. Uh, you know, we, we we tend to get all upset about the vaccine mandates that we have here in Australia, 
And we, um, well, actually, you know, the US, they get way more upset over way less. <laughs> yeah. That's all I can say. <laughs> anyway, the long and the short of it is the Fifth, the fifth Circuit Court in Texas has blocked, blocked uh, Biden's vaccine mandate. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this was a mandate. And, and here, listen to how lame this is compared to what we have in Australia. Um, any company of 100 employees or more, um, everyone must be either vaxxed or have a weekly test and wear a mask. That is like, that is like. <laughs> there are so many Australians who are wishing that was the case because they would still be at work. Dude, yeah, I'd get a piece. Like, like if if I was in the, oh, I, I'm vaxxed, yes. but if I was in a situation where it's like, you know, you, you just have to get a test, everywhere. man, I'll stick that thing up my nose. I don't care. I'll, I hated. I had it. I know you. Ha- I know you hate it, but for me, but I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm whatever, man. Like, yeah, there are so many people in Australia <laughs> that would still have a job right now if we had that. But of course, the difference between Australia and the United States is that the United States have, has a legal um, background for both civil and religious liberty, mm. whereas we don't in this country. And we've always assumed that we do because we have always operated like we do, but you get a crisis like this and suddenly you realise that those uh, legal systems do not exist. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, and, and, and compare this, right? Uh, if you break the vaccine mandate, Biden's vaccine mandate, it's a $14,000 fine, oh, right? Okay. Compared to what um, Dan Andrews is pushing through right now, which is two years in jail and a $92,000 fine. <laughs> Yeah, so Americans are complaining. They've got nothing to complain about. They try should try living over here. But anyway, of course, uh, Biden has you know uh, proposed this vaccine mandate. It has created a storm of op- opposition from one side of the country yeah. to the other, as you can imagine, and a storm of lawsuits right across the nation. And so this is uh, a couple of samples: the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the Asbury Theological Seminary, both in Kentucky, have sued the government over this one um, <laughs> on religious freedom grounds. And they filed in the sixth Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah, and they can do that in America because they have religious freedom in America. Mm. We don't have religious freedom in America. Mm. I keep getting people coming to me and telling me, "Oh no, we have a constitutional right, and we have religious freedom no, in don't. America." In Australia, we don't. Mm. It doesn't exist. But it's interesting, like you mentioned there, like how it's going through the the, the fifth and the sixth circuit of of appeals like yes. how america's split up into these different regions to to literally give people the opportunity to and states because you said it was like blocked through texas yes like texas themselves blocked it through the fifth circuit of, of appeals right. like they've set up a system in which people can just decide that they don't want to do things and take it to the court of appeals well if dan andrews gets his latest uh legislation through and creates himself a dictator in victoria then we've kind of got a similar system here where, they, where you can just ignore the federal government and do your own thing. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't just secede, proclaim himself, <laughs> do it, Julius Emperor, Caesar, Emperor. dictator for life. Anyway. Emperor of Victoria, man. <laughs> it's pretty wild stuff. Anyway, uh, continuing on here, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court cited grave breaches of the Constitution when they wow. blocked it, so pretty heavy stuff. Uh, the Biden administration replied by saying that it was shameful and outrageous well, it's- and called these judges hypocrites because they were working from home and uh, in a safe environment and uh, they don't know what the real world is like. 
Um, okay, so the, uh, the, 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 some of the other groups, um, the American Family Association has sued the government, Answers in Genesis has sued the government. You can go on and on and on down through the list. Everybody is suing over this particular piece of legislation. And That's so wild. It is, it is. <laughs> but we need to stop and compare between Australia and mm. the United States. Mm. There are people who come to me and say, well, I've got this right or that right or the other right under the Constitution of Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got the right of bodily autonomy. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop the Bible, this doesn't stop the government from coercing you. Mm. So this is one of the reasons why the government has stopped short of forcing everyone to get a vaccination. You are not forced, you are coerced. Mm. And the reason is because they can't violate your body autonomy. Mm. Your body, body, body autonomy basically means that you have the right to choose what you put into your body or don't put into your body or what medications you take or what medications you don't take, you mm. cannot violate that right, but you can coerce yeah. under Australian law, which is why we have you know so much coercion in Australian law, but nobody's actually gone to jail yet or been fined for not having the vaccine. So... The and there are there are many people who are like yeah I'm going to find a lawyer and I'm going to fight this through the court system and you're going to lose here in Australia yeah you are not going to win don't go onto YouTube and see all of these people who are winning their court cases on YouTube who are sovereign citizens and all of this kind of stuff go onto YouTube and check out all the sovereign citizens who are losing dude oh, because we are not yikes. we are not living in a we do not have a justice system. Mm. We have a legal system, mm. and you are not going to go up against the government and win. <laughs> nope. Okay, that's not going to happen. And we don't have a legal framework, particularly from the standpoint of religious liberty. And people come to me with Section One One Six of the Constitution, and they're like, "Yes, we've got religious liberty in the Constitution." That's because you know the word. You say that because you know the words of the Constitution. If you knew anything about history, you would not say that. Mm. If you know history, you know that we don't have that in the Constitution. Mm. Okay? Knowing the words of the Constitution is very different from knowing the history of the Constitution because the Constitution is written, words are written, and then they are interpreted Mm. by the court system. Even in the United States where you have the First Amendment of the Constitution which gives you religious liberty. Here's an interesting question. Why did Bill Clinton pass back in 1993 the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? If you think the words of the Constitution are a protection for you, why did Bill Clinton pass that through uh, Congress in 1993? The reason he did that was because over the last decade, the US Supreme Court had gutted the First Amendment of the Constitution and legally there was no legal framework left for religious liberty in the United States. Mm. And so he had to pass it through Congress because of the way the Constitution had been interpreted. It is no different here in Australia. Section 116 of our Constitution lasted about two years before it was reinterpreted and done away with. It no Mm. longer exists under the words as it was written. There is a reason why here in Australia we have the Ruddock Report into religious liberty. We would not need that if you went by the words of the Constitution. There is a reason why the coalition is drafting religious a religious freedom bill right now. We would not need that if the words of the Constitution had meaning. Mm. We need to know the history of our Constitution and the history of how it's been interpreted because that's the only way that you can actually understand what is going on. Finally, very quickly, one last thing. Uh, new movie gone out. 
Um, the uh, biopic of C.S. Lewis. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, sold out 1.2 million on its first night. Was planned to be released one once only in a number of select uh, cinemas. Has now been extended right across the country in the United States and will continue to play until November 18 because of its popularity. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Uh, however, it is now time for our interview of the day, and joining us on the phone is Joanna from Asian Aid. Joanna, welcome to the show. Great, thank you very much for having me. Now it's fantastic. We actually really appreciate um, Asian Aid and what Asian Aid does, and so we're glad to hear the stories that uh, come out of, of course, you're a charity that works in uh, India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And Joanna, this morning I'm wondering whether you can give us a little bit of insight into the um, the impact. Obviously, you're working with uh, children and education and so forth in these countries. Um, but I'm wondering whether you give some insight into the impacts of COVID. Um, obviously, these are very poor countries, very underdeveloped countries. And from what we've heard in the media, the countries that have been hit the hardest in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the level of, I guess, already um, poverty and suffering in these countries is very high. So to throw something like COVID in, um, yeah, just the level of difficulty that people are facing has been um, extreme. Um, and a lot of the families we work with uh, were already vulnerable and in challenging situations. Um, and many of them are day labourers, so they earn uh, work that day and what they earn is how they provide for their families. Mm. And so with things like lockdowns, they haven't been able to work and they haven't been able to earn money and provide for their children. Um, so that's why our priority has been in working with these families to make sure um, they have food security and to check in on the welfare of the children um, to help them through these really challenging times. I'm wondering whether you can give us some insight and, you know, I don't know whether you can or not because obviously – you know, it's difficult to travel at these times and so forth, but you're probably more in touch with what is happening over there than the average person here in Australia. But we hear these truly astronomical figures coming out of, you know, places like India, numbers that are just, you know, eye-wateringly large. But in a country like India or Bangladesh or Nepal, how accurate, really how accurate is the record-keeping? I mean, how how much can we trust the numbers? How much do, how much do they actually know? How many people um, are dealing with COVID? I think yeah, it's um, definitely the level of testing. It's hard because in a lot of these places they can't access um, COVID tests. So you're absolutely right that record keeping um, it can't be accurate. Um, but I think the figures do demonstrate that the numbers have been massive, um, and we've seen the impact. Um, both from having COVID and also just periods of lockdown um, on the families that we work with has been significant. Um, and just to give you an idea, so in Bangladesh, um, the schools recently opened in September um, and they've actually had the longest school closures of any country in the world. So they were closed for 543 days. Um, and just as a comparison, like Melbourne has had some really long lockdowns and they've been closed for about 262 days. But that's nearly twice as long that kids have been out of school, um, which is such, you know, it's a, it's a big impact. Um, and in these countries, people can't just go to Coles or Woolies and pick up their groceries or get it delivered. Um, it's a real challenge that, you know, they're, they're stuck at home and they don't have an income and they can't, you know, get food, um, which is why we've provided um, food packages and emergency financial support 
to these families just to help them get through mm-hmm. and where possible to make sure kids can continue with their schooling and are returning to school now that schools are actually reopening. So is distance education or homeschooling a thing in these in these countries? I mean, here in Australia, of course, you know, when, when the schools closed down, everybody went to distance ed and homeschooling, that kind of thing. Is that a thing in these in the, in these countries? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's amazing with mobile technology that even in really remote rural parts of some of these countries, um, a lot of children are able to do online learning. Um, and so things like Zoom classrooms or using Snapchat um, or even um, being able to pick up learning packages to do at home um, definitely has been a thing. Um, and we've ensured um, where possible our partners have maintained contact with all of our children. So they do regular welfare checks, um, whether in person or on the phone, just to check that the children are studying where possible, how they're going, and just identifying any needs that their families might have. Now, a lot of the schools that you're running over there are boarding schools. Um, what kind of impact does it have on the families when you know all of the children are suddenly at home for, what was it, 543 days, which they weren't actually planning for when those children went off to boarding school? Yeah, it has it has a big impact on those families. Um, and for some children, it wasn't actually possible for them to go home. So they've remained at the boarding schools, um, whether homes, they don't have a home or home's not a safe environment. Um, but the staff at the boarding schools have made real effort to make this time um, positive for the children, teaching them life skills, trying to maintain some kind of um, normality and also fun for them. Um, and the other, um, I guess, positive that you could see coming through some of these lockdowns is we've actually used that time to complete some building projects at some of our schools, so improve um, some of the classroom facilities and put in new classrooms and new playgrounds. Um, so it's been really exciting for some of those children returning to the boarding schools um, to have you know improved facilities. So just a bit of joy after yeah such a long and challenging period of time, um, which as you say they weren't expecting to be at home for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Then that sounds like a really unique kind of a situation that you've got happening there, where you have. Schools are closed down, but you actually have kids who are at the school but not at school. Is that is that kind of the scenario where you know some of these kids they can't go home, so they are they are at the school but they're not at school. Is is, is that what's happening? And, and you know, if you've got kids that can't go home, is it illegal to run classes for them? How does that actually work? Yeah, it definitely has looked different. Um, and the boarding schools, there's been a, a small number of children that have remained. Um, but yes, they've had to maintain all the social distancing and mask wearing um, and doing, I guess, a similar kind of online learning, learning packages um, from within the school facilities. Um, but there's also been children that were at boarding school previously that have chosen to go to a local school, um, which is one of the reasons we're continuing to expand our programs around our Adventist village schools. Um, and these programs are really exciting because it's not just the children and the school that are benefiting, it's actually the whole community. So these programs run things like um, adult literacy classes and sports and drama programs and livelihood training on like growing vegetables or raising ducks and chickens. Um, and so the benefit is not just the school and the child, it's the whole community and these families are you know, able to increase their, um, their incomes um, and their financial capacity. Um, and so yeah, the benefits are 
um, it's yeah, it's exciting to see the, the impact and the benefits that this is having on not just the Adventist families, but the yeah, the whole community around them. So these are probably three of uh, you know in the reports there, but probably our three hardest hit countries in the world as far as COVID goes, um, and with the number of of, um, of of students that you've got that you're actually taking care of in these countries, um, I imagine that there would be some pretty um, horrific stories. Do you have um, do you have children that have been a part of your schools and um, you know maybe boarding boarding school students or whatever that have actually lost their parents and become orphans as a result of this? Um, we haven't heard of children directly through our program that um, have lost parents. Um, there's definitely been family members that have passed away. Um, lots of suffering. Uh, we've had some of our partner staff that have had COVID. Um, and so hearing their stories, it's been um, horrific to hear like some of the experiences they've had. Um, but um, thanks to God at this stage, um, we haven't had any children or parents that we're aware of that have passed away. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're really grateful for that. Mm. Um, and I think just the commitment of our um partners in contacting the children and yeah just making making their welfare and their well-being a real priority Uh, we had just the other week in Bangladesh some of the teachers from one of our partner schools there actually um, went out into the communities and traveled and visited a number of families where the children hadn't yet returned to school Um, and it's it's difficult traveling in Bangladesh so they're going through remote areas um, and just being able to speak with their the parents and the children, um, and those those um, teachers returned with 22 students that hadn't come back to school once they'd reopened, which was just such a fantastic outcome that those children are now back at school, they're continuing their education, um, and it really just showed you know, the dedication and commitment that these teachers have to literally go the extra mile and just yeah, care for these children and make sure that they're not left behind, that they will you know, continue their education. Yeah, wow. See, this is a, this is a very different kind of, um, a culture, a mindset, whatever, than what we might have here in Australia. So the schools open up in September. Uh, we would just imagine that, you know, the date that they open up, all the kids would turn up, but you've got kids that actually haven't come back to school. What kind of factors would be playing into that scenario where the teachers are actually going out and tracking these children down and saying, Hey, you know, we're back at school. Why don't you come and join us? Is, is it a lack of information that is getting out to these kids or is there family situations that are affecting it? What's what's stopping the children from uh, from you know some of the children from coming back? Yeah, there'd be a number of factors. Um, I think in some parts it's the harvest season, so the families are working really hard to harvest their crops, and they don't actually have time to travel because often it's a long way to the school um, to to take their child to the school. Um, so that would be a factor. Um, I'm sure there's yeah concerns and just cost factors. Um, that would all play into some of the children not returning. Um, and schools have done it gradually, so they didn't just open and everyone was back. They sort of did it like transition where different grades would start at different times. Um, some of the boarding schools actually used the facilities kind of as you know, children would return and do a period of isolation uh, before going back into the mainstream classes. Um, so all these things are just to make sure it's as safe as possible for the kids to return. Um, and of course, there's things like wearing masks and social distancing and temperature checks, um, which schools have in place just so children can feel um, more safe and comfortable when they come back into that environment. Mm. And have you had any major outbreaks in any of the uh, schools that you guys are managing? No, thankfully not. Um, we've heard of cases, um, but no large numbers. Um, 
thankfully. So, yeah, we're very um, grateful for that and we just pray that that will continue in these schools, that they will be um, a safe environment for the for the children to return. Um, and teachers, are, they're actually going the extra mile. So recently in Nepal, um, there was a holiday festival and usually all the children would return to their homes and spend the time with their families. Um, but because of the high risk of either children not returning to the school or actually contracting COVID, they decided to keep the kids at the school. Um, but they ran a whole heap of really fun events and activities and days just to make it special so the children could feel, you know, they're a part of this community, um, they could have some fun, and that life is slowly starting to return to normal. Yeah, that, you raise a really good, you raise a really interesting point there, Joanna, that was actually sort of rattling around in the back of my brain as we're having this conversation is that, you know, you've got an environment where you've got a lot of students that are in boarding school. Um, very, very rare to have students in a boarding school in Australia uh, compared to somewhere like, uh, you know, these countries that you're mentioning and it just seemed strange to me you know children are the ones who obviously are the least affected by covid uh the least in danger from it but they can spread it just as easily as anybody else wouldn't it actually have made more sense to keep the boarding school students at school rather than sending them home where they could catch it and spread it or if they did catch it they could spread it to people who were vastly more vulnerable yeah, I think it's such a complex situation. And I think similar to in Australia where the government has decided to have lockdowns and closed schools, um, they've decided in these countries that that's actually the safest scenario. Um, so children at home in their families, if the families um, separate and isolating, are hopefully safe. Um, but you, you are right that, you know, there's. Uh, I think some of the challenges came with children actually returning to school or returning to home and just having to have those measures in place to make sure then, you know, a child isn't bringing COVID into that um, school community. Um, so I think it's been lots of challenges and I think, you know, the governments as much are just working out what's what's the best decisions we can make. Mm. Um, but it's been, yeah, encouraging to, to see how our partner organisations have just shown so much um, commitment and dedication and resilience through this period just to do everything they can to, to care for these children, to regularly check on their welfare, um, to make sure as much as possible they are connected and learning. Um, and I think that's that's led to this amazing outcome where so many of our children have returned to school. Um, and, of course, there'll be some that won't and situations change, um, but it's been really exciting just just to see children back at school and, um, yeah, just doing really fun things. Um, another one of our schools in Bangladesh, a number of the children and teachers participated in a in a fun run um, so they got together. It was, it was like a virtual one, so people could participate all over the country. Um, but the kids and teachers got together, and some of the kids did really well and got medals. Um, and I think as a runner myself, you can just see the real value in like events like this in teaching, like health and social awareness, and also just seeing again that that normality and people celebrating and doing really um, fun things together. Um, to yeah, making community and reconnecting um, after yeah such a long time apart. Yeah, fantastic, Joanna. Thank you so much for joining us here. That's Joanna right there from Asian Aid. And if you would like to support Asian Aid, give them a quick, quick Google. You will find them. They do amazing uh, charitable work in education in India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And would very much appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one eight hundred Faith FM.